Wow, you are going to be blown away by Jose's story. I don't even know that I have the right words to set up what you're going to hear today, but let me just paint the picture this way. Imagine that you're at the movie theater with your wife when you get a message that says, hey, boss, because you're the CEO of a major corporation, I need you to get on a plane tomorrow and fly down to Venezuela and handle a conference and a meeting because it's a really important meeting. You get down there and when you get down there, they arrest you and your team, throw you into captivity and you don't leave, listen to this number, for four years and eight months. You did absolutely nothing wrong. You're arrested and you are thrown into prison and kept in isolation for much of that four years and eight months. How do you handle yourself? You're going to hear how Jose kept his hope and his uh, faith alive during that incredible time of captivity as the leader of the Sitco Six when they spent almost five years arrested and in a Venezuelan jail on this episode of Unbeatable. Before we get into the interview for this episode, I want to invite you to go with me on the trip of a lifetime, and that is not an exaggeration. I've spent more than the last year building a tour of the Holy Land that never existed before. This is what we're calling the unbeatable adventure, where we're going to repel, we're going to climb cliffs, we're going to ride mountain bikes through the countryside, we're going to swim in the Dead Sea, we're going to climb trails, we're going to spend nights under the stars and spend days in luxury hotel rooms, we'll be in fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee. This is basically everything that you could want to do with action and adventure adventure in Israel, plus all of the world's great historical sites there. And the dates for this trip are March 17th through the 27th. I want to invite you to come along. We built this trip so no matter where you live in the world, all you need to do is buy plane tickets and show up in Israel on day one. And from there, we pay for and we take care of everything. Hey, if this epic tour sounds like something you're interested in, why don't you go over to Signature Tours and search for the unbeatable Holy Land Adventure with Jeff Struker. Starts March 17th and it runs until the 27th. I would love to see you there with me. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Jose, thank you for giving me a little bit of time and being a guest on this episode of Unbeatable with me. Thank you very much for having me. Look, I tried to practice this a couple of times right before we started recording, and I know (laughs) I'm not going to get it right. So I'm just going to ask you, would you pronounce your last name? So yes, thank you. So that everybody who's listening right now knows who I'm talking to, because uh, 
I don't know why I'm struggling so hard with your last name right now, but I'll give it a shot before we're done. Um, hey, what we're going to do is talk about almost five years of captivity for doing absolutely nothing wrong. True story. I went on a small team to Venezuela. I went to the coast in January, actually like the first week of January, 2000. You may know in December of 1999, huge floods as a result of torrential rains. I knew rains. Up there. Yeah, so wow. um, I went there with a small team to Venezuela, there was a mudslide, as you're mm -hmm. probably aware, wiped yes, an entire village off of the side of a mountain, pushed them into the ocean. 30 to 50,000 people literally vanished off the face of the 50, earth. 50,000 is, is that now an official count? 50,000, yeah. yes. Their bodies were never recovered, and I worked myself to death. I mean, shoveling wet, heavy mud just trying to pull bodies out of the uh, rubble to see if anybody was still alive. I did this for almost 10 days with a small team of about five or six other people. And the day that we were getting ready to leave, I'm clearly an American, obviously don't look Venezuelan. And the day that we're getting ready to leave and fly out of Caracas and head back to the United States, me and my buddy, got stopped by two immigration guards and they didn't want to let us on the airplane. And this was one of the most tense moments that I've experienced up to this point. And I've already been to combat a couple of times by this point, but it's pretty obvious they want to pull us out of the group, pull us away from the rest of the flight, put us off in a separate room and start asking some pretty serious questions. And I just kind of muscled my way onto the airplane. I still remember what it felt like to this day, because once you get pulled away from the rest of the group, once you get separated, once you start to become, uh, you know, part of that state run government, this is under President Hugo Chavez, there's not a lot our country can do for you. This for me lasted moments, literally just a few moments. And I got on the airplane and when the engines finally started rolling and the wheels took off and we were finally in the air. I that's right. I didn't breathe a sigh of relief until I could see the coastline of Venezuela behind us. That was nothing, absolutely nothing compared to your four years and eight months in captivity. I needed to help people understand why you were going down to Venezuela as part of the sit go six. This tells you how notorious this event was when there's a name attached to it. What, what were you doing in the oil industry leading up to going to Venezuela back in 2017? Yeah, you know, I, I did a long career in the oil and gas. I be, I'm Venezuelan born and, and dual citizen. So um, I began my career in Venezuela in 1985 when Televesa was one of the biggest companies of the world, was the fifth company of the world. So was very proud working there. And, and, and I've been working on a lot of international projects. And like 15 years ago, I was I came here as a, an expat from PDVSA to Circo. Circo Petroleum is the U.S.-based company. It's, by the way, the sixth refinery here in the U.S., but it's owned by PDVSA. So I came there and became a Circo employee. And then I finalized my, my career in Circo. And by the way, in 2017, I was the CEO of the company. 
I became the CEO. I'm going to say that one more time so that the people that are driving don't miss this. When you go down to Venezuela in 2017, by this point, you're the CEO of, I remember Sitco. It is a pretty large oil company. And for the guests that are not aware of it, in the oil, the world, the world's oil uh, supplies, Venezuela is up there in the top five in the, you know, the petroleum supplies are for the world. So um, you're a, you've got a lot of responsibility and a lot riding on your shoulders in 2017. Yeah, and, and let me tell you, that that's exactly right because I became the CEO and in August of, of that year, August 2017, began that big dispute with the regime of Venezuela, Hugo Chavez already was dead and was in place, Maduro, had like three or four years there. So they did a, like a fake election and then the, the the president of the U.S. here, Trump about that moment, decided to begin to impose sanctions in, in August. So that, that was the, the, the environment that was going around. And, and when I saw that, to tell you the truth, I told my wife, I said, you know, I don't, want, I don't like this. I'm going to get retired. I was having 35 years by that time in, in the company. So in, in October, I flew to Caracas because I, I normally went there back and forward, very normal. And I flew to Caracas and, and, and talked with my boss, but that was the president of PDVSA at that time, and asked him that I wanted to get retired. He agreed. He accepted my retirement to February that the next year. So I was literally four months to get retired. Wow. You were four months away from retiring. Four months. So I came back. was at Thanksgiving season, four days to Thanksgiving. I was preparing everything to my family. You know, we were, I were in vacation mode after that. And coming back one or two months after, gone, retired, becoming a consultant. That was my plan. That never happened because, in, <laughs> of course not. In November 2020, I was in a movie here in Houston. I live in Houston. I was in a movie with my, my, my wife. I'm a big Marvel and DC fan. I was looking Superman, you know, in a movie. Relaxing, seeing Superman, and I received a phone call. I received that 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 phone call that said, "Hey, Jose, you have to come tomorrow to Caracas. There's going to be a big budget meeting here. We were revamping a refinery in Aruba at that time. I had uh -huh. to make I had to make the presentation. So I I didn't see nothing wrong. I went with my five top tier guys, my five vice president that were also Venezuelan dual citizens." And they did the presentation. There was a big room with 1,000 people around the world. I made my presentation. I have the plane in my KTI airport waiting for me to come back to Houston. And as you said, that was, was the most terrifying moment in my life. Came like 20 guys with this. I always tell there is like a Robocop outfit. You know, big tall guys. <laughs> really yeah, yeah, uh -huh. yeah. That that look with these with some masks, some yeah, masks, masks like like, like skeletons, sure. like a skeleton. Yeah. You know, very scary, very scary. When I see though all those guys coming in, everybody got scared. And to tell you the truth, I didn't know no clue who these guys were because they have here a big name in yellow. They said Dijesin. The guy that's beside me, I said, what? And like I was scared to death. That was the counterintelligent police that has been trained by the Russians, 
by the Cubans, by the Iranians, and by the Chinese. Can you imagine this guy, how evil they are? Well, this guy asked my, my name, and when I heard my name, I said, well, why is this guy asking for me? Yeah. So they, they put us in a separate room, and then they came a general. A general. I'm the general, blah, blah, blah. And you are accused by espionage, treason to the country, embezzlement, corrupt. I was like, what the heck? They put us handcuffed, and that day began my night. <laughs> that was the beginning of the nightmare, my friend. So that, that's so how this story started. All you and the five yes. vice presidents that went with you are pulled off of this plane. Is it a private plane that you're it, on? It was a single corporate plane, yes. Yes, yeah. a, so a corporate plane. Basically, they just pulled the entire crew off of the Oh, yeah, completely, plane. yes, yeah. Um, and the guys that grabbed you off of that plane are not just physically uh, intimidating, but that kind of... Um, intelligence you know uh background makes them really scary because of their totally scary to, the, the, yeah. the, the, the way they do where you're an ex-military and you know what it is sure very to you that that look everything is set up to to be scared to them i know interrogation <laughs> tactics uh unfortunately really well and i know how overwhelming they're supposed to be so did you get a chance to even let anybody know when they pulled you off of this plane and threw you in a room? Or at this point, did they take your phones and everything and everything else? Everything was taken. And the, the only way my family knew is I had the driver waiting for me. And the driver, when he when he saw everything, called my wife here in Houston. He said, something wrong is going to Joseba. Of course, in minute was hitting all the news because the way this guy behaved there, they are really mean. They know how to do be mean. So the, the, the announcement was done by, by the president. We got those spies. Blah, blah. So when we realized what was going on is that we were caught in the middle of this big dispute between the uh, U.S. And, and Venezuela. We never thought that we could get caught in that situation. To tell you the line, I, in, in my nightmare, I, I thought that. Yeah, I want to give the audience a little bit of geopolitics right now, very briefly, so that before you keep telling the story, um, Venezuela, because it's so rich in oil, when there's an embargo against other countries, North Korea, Iran, other countries like that, although they're international embargoes, sometimes Venezuela will, sometimes they won't um, honor those embargoes. And as a result, the rest of the United Nations countries that are trying to honor those embargoes then get uh, there, there starts to be uh, beef between those countries, i.e. the United States and Venezuela. And it just gets it just goes downhill when the president and this is for the audience, when the president starts to parade you around and tell the country of Venezuela look who we captured. Now it puts the president and his administration in Venezuela in a position where I've got to take this thing to the full extreme or else I'm going to look bad in the eyes of my people if I don't, you know, severely treat you and prosecute you and either send you away for the rest of your life or kill you. I mean, that's typically how it's going to go when you become a very public presidential pawn at this point. Uh, 
yeah, which yeah. is what happens to the Sitco Six. Yeah, we, let me tell you, uh, Jerry. Next ten months, I was totally disappeared. Ten months disappeared. No, no clue what was going on with me. We were separated. Uh, they put me in a, like in a vessel that they called the submarine that totally locked. No windows, no fresh air, no nothing. So the light 24-7 turned on. At some point, I lost totally the sense of the time. Yeah, I of course. Lost, totally right. lost. Ten months in isolation, no um, outside stimulus, and the lights are on for 24 hours a day for 10 months. I hope the people that are listening to this right now are sitting there trying to imagine what it would feel like when you can't tell if it's Tuesday or Friday, you can't tell if it's the middle of the afternoon or the middle of the night, and you have no idea how long you've been there. And by the way, that's when time starts to stand still. And I don't know if I've been here for a week or for a year by this point. And I realize that's hard for some people to understand, but I'm absolute. I, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, this is what it's like for prisoners under these kind of conditions. They don't know if I've been here for a week, a month, or a year at this point. Yeah, and that's totally true, Jerry. And let me tell you, today still, for me, sometimes it's difficult to, you know, have the, have the chronology of the time because the time begins to be messy with you, you know. I can tell you that that 10 months was the worst thing ever that can you can imagine because, uh, by the way, that food, totally terrible. I begin to stop eating because what's rotten i lost 100 pounds 100 pounds wow 100 pounds um when you were there in those 10 months did they come in and regularly ask you questions did they kind of uh, physically abuse you what was that like they didn't abuse me physically directly they did a lot of psychological abuse yeah, a lot of my a day, lot right? of, a lot of but but i was in, in that place the, the way I learned after the, we were moved that in the other side of the wall where I was, there was a torture uh, site. So in the night, I could hear. So literally, you can hear all the night torturing people. What was happening to the other five vice presidents that were in uh, captivity with you? I, I saw them one year after. I didn't have no clue. I didn't knew if they were alive or not. You didn't even see them for an entire year? One year. We stayed one year separated, yes. Yeah, for the guys that were in prison of war camps during World War II or Korea or Vietnam, at least they saw their buddies, you know, when they traveled from one part of the camp to the next. If you didn't see anybody that you went there with for a year, that's total isolation right there. I remember that one year after when, well, first of the first 10 months, one day they opened the door because I say, say we were totally locked, locked. Lock. So when they opened the door and they, and they said, uh, hey, come here, they, they always yelled it to you and you cannot see them in the face. They uh -huh. never allow you to see their face. You have to be, you know. Keep your head down, right? Yes. And yeah. then they, they told me, you're going to have one minute call. So they gave me a phone and, and had, you had one minute. And when I, when, when I, I called my wife, I, I, I remember the phone, but at some point it was like, I don't know if this is the phone. So I guess, and it was the phone. I called <laughs> right. her. And when, when she answered, when I heard her, 
she began to cry and I said, I only have one minute. And then she told me, we're fighting hard for you. And I, I told her, I'm, I'm, I'm alive. That's what I said, I'm yeah. alive. That was all the call. The one minute phone call, by the way, um, I don't know anything, just for the listeners, I don't know anything about Jose's story. I'm learning this fresh as you're learning it. Um, but I do know a lot about what it's like to be in captivity. I've seen it. I've gone through a lot of training myself. And I'll tell you that one minute phone call itself is torture because anything that you say could be used against you. You know, the government can use that to try to prove their case against you. But after you get off the phone, now you have the joy of hearing your wife's voice and then all of the pain of remembering where you are and how far away from your wife you are and how impossible this situation looks. It all hits uh, as soon as you hand the phone back. So what happens during year two and three and four and almost to year five of captivity? Well, we were evolving because after those 10 months, I learned that the situation was becoming to be really serious. By, by the way, today I know many things because I came back and I know that. Yes. that so, so the story is that since day one, the six family went to talk to the, to the government and they were really uh, attached to the case since day one. Uh, they, they were received two times in the White House and they had several meetings with a, with a national security advisor, with a... State Department secretary, they, they were really the congressmen. Everybody was really involved in that. But the information that were, they were receiving is that stay silent. So that first year, we really went silent. All our families went silent because that was the, the, the instruction. Today, I tell the people that don't do that. Go, go, go to the press because that, that makes pressure. So that's a lesson learned. This. So what, what happened is that the situation began to go so bad between the two countries that at some point they expelled the, the U.S. ambassador. Uh -huh. so the U.S. That. ambassador yep. got expelled, so there was no representation, and, and, and we heard about that, and we felt like we were totally lost there you know, when that happened. We learned after and some time that, that he went 11 times to try to see us. They never allowed us to, to, to see us. The ambassador went 11 times? 11 times. He went 11 yeah. times. I talked with him after that some time ago, and he confirmed me that he stayed 11 times there, pushing to see us, and he could never see us. By the way, before he got expelled, the only photo that, that is in, at that time that I believe is the internet where we are in very bad shape was taken by him because they, they, they took us to the, to the court I can tell you, going to the court was a total show because this guy came like 20 guys and they yes, locked everything. They were always yeah. doing a show with us. We became like a yeah. puppet in a show, you know? Yeah. You became the Venezuelan government's uh, or way of demonstrating their uh, problems with the U.S. government. And it, they just happened to use you as the puppets, like you said, for this. Um, I want to remind people that when the when a country recalls their ambassador, that is a big step towards war. Doesn't always lead to war, but that is a big step towards war. And if you're now in captivity and the U.S. ambassador has just been recalled from Venezuela, 
the situation between the U.S. and Venezuela is spiraling downhill real fast. Yeah. How do you get? How did you get some of this news about the ambassador and other? Well, let me tell you that, that 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 is that is part of the the funny thing of all this thing that I'm gonna in the, in the book I'm gonna tell it in detail because you know where another prisoners there that, that were in another cells that they were political prisoners because we were with military political prisoners and some civil political prisoners. There were generals, colonels. There were a lot of military with us. Yeah. Huh. So they are, they are part of the political Venezuelan prisoners. We were with all these guys. So some of these guys had years there. So they were having family visits uh, during the Saturday. So this guy, when came, the family visit began to give us news. And we were talking with them through the electrical outlet. We could have yes. communication. Oh, through the, <laughs> that's smart, through the electrical yeah, yeah. outlet. Yeah, and let me tell smart. you, that we begin to have these type of, you know, things. And you military know better than me, this type of thing. I can tell you, we did a lot of things that today, I, I don't know how we did it, but, you know, when you're in that situation, you begin to be very creative. So we begin mm -hmm. to receive news through that. So we, we because we were not having this and nothing, but we begin to have some type of information. And this guy knew that we were there. And they were really empathic because they were also prisoners of, of, of conscience or political prisoners. So they begin to bring up some kind of news. And we knew that there was going to be a commission of the UN coming to visit that because it was all over the news. That and they came, they came to visit us. So when the guys of the UN came and they saw us, that we were really in bad shape because I I, I have had pneumonia. One of the guys I, I heard that he had bronchitis. Oh, I it gave, it gave me scabies to me, so we were really in bad shape. That with yeah. no medicine, no medicine. We're talking about 2018 was one of the worst years ever in Venezuela because the oil embargo was in place. The sanctions uh -huh. were in place. The country was a, a lack of food, medicine. There was a national blackout. Happened a lot of things at that time, and we were there. So when when these guys of the UN came, we, uh, they went and they talked with the, with, with the president and said, these guys are going to die. You have to take care of them. So that's why they decided to begin to allow us, our families, not them, our families, to provide food. So one of my sons had to flew to Colombia. He moved to Colombia, and from Colombia, he began to supply medicine and food, and somebody arranged to cook, and they began to bring me the food to, to, to the cell. And that's, that's the way I began to eat, one year after. And your, your family had to provide the food food that you survived on and during, it had to come across the Colombian border. Let me tell That's you, incredible. they stayed doing it during four years. My son stayed four years in Bogota doing that every every week. That was wow. a, a weekly routine. A weekly routine during That's, four years. I can tell That's you. That's incredible. That. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. What's the only way? My wife always says today, that what she was trying to do was trying to provide me quality of life because that that they begin to allow it to do it. And let me tell you something else. That's the way I managed to have a communication because I, I, I said, okay, now I'm having this food. 
they, uh, they were asking me to the trash can to bring it back. So I, I began to, in, the, in a double button, smuggle letters. I begin to smuggle letters with her, and the letters begin to go through. And let me tell you, we stayed doing that during three years. I stayed three, three years smuggling letters, yeah. and when I came back, my wife had compiled almost 1,000 letters. 1,000 letters. She had put it in work, and that is today what's going to be my book. That my book is going to going out is based on those letters. The letters that she and I wrote back and forward during three years. We stayed with it three years. Your family is amazing. What is your wife's name? Mary's. She's my hero. <laughs> yeah. And your son that moved to Bogota, what is his name? John. 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 Um, for people that are not aware of just how psychologically traumatic prison is, the it's well documented when people lose the will to fight for their own life, basically lose hope that they'll ever get out of a prison camp or out of a, you know, um, some kind of political uh, prison. That's the moment that their health starts to decline and almost every one of them died. So when your wife is providing you food and your son is getting the food and medicine across the border, they're not just giving you quality of life. They're actually giving you hope that you might survive and if you lose hope, and here's the thing that every prisoner has, that's ever, anybody who's ever been in a foreign prison will tell you the moment that you lose hope is the moment that you're going to die. So I saw guys prison. going through that situation, Derek. I saw several cases. That Your wife, she, she is an incredible woman. Your son is an amazing man that would be willing to go to those extremes. Of course, they love you, but be willing to go to those streams be because what they were doing is not just giving you food or medicine or even smuggling letters back and forth. They were giving you hope that you might actually make it out of this prison. That, that, that is totally true. For me, for me, the situation began to evolve. And, and, and after that, one year after, because by that time already the pressure was really high. So they decided to put us together. Can you imagine... One year after oh, they the put all six of you together in yes. the same room. One year after we, we were put together, and then we stayed okay. that, that next four years together. Very tiny room, 100 square foot, living in a closet, but we were together. We were together. Yes, and you could encourage one of those guys when they were really having a bad day. They can encourage you when you're having a, a bad day. Wow, man, you, 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 you're nailing it. That, that is exactly what we did. You know, the first day we saw it, the first thing we did, we hugged and we cried. We cried like a babies because we saw that we were all alive. And, and then we did, I, I always say this episode that it, we did like a board <laughs> because we were, you know, Oil and yeah. gas executive, the six of us. So we did a, like a round table. By the way, the first time in one year, we had a table, a table. We were what? eating in the floor. So I, we saw a, a table was like a big, big deal. We, we sit down in the table and we decided to create a plan. The plan that we created is today what I call the life field for a survival guide, my coaching program. Okay. But, but was based on some techniques that we really thought that we were gonna help us. And we create a plan, a very structured plan, because oil and gas is kind of the military, you know, you always have this strategic thinking. So you, you are prepared for that. So we created a plan, a 
to eat, to, to clean, to do exercise, to wash ourselves. We didn't have running water, by the way. One of the guys, he did a calculation how much water you can have. So we have these small cans of five liters, one gallon. So we have three gallons per person per day. So that was it. So we stayed with them during four years that we begin to have a, we had three bunk beds. And so we did a plan that everybody could eat in peace. We created a, a system that a light turned on and turned off and at some point, no noise. If you, they begin to allow us to have radio. So everybody had headphones. So it was a totally silent. If somebody was down, Everybody came to jump. It was really, really, really a structure. And at the end, we begin to read the Bible and we begin to pray almost three hours per day. And at the end, at the end, one of my guys, he shouted out very loud, we're going to come back strong in soul, body, and spirit. All right. And we went, All and right. We went to bed. Yes. We went to bed. So that thing we begin to do it in a daily basis. Every day, one day at a time, we begin to do that one day, one week, one month, one year, and we came back. And we're here. I want to tell, uh, I, I want people to hear just the change in spirit of people looking each other in the eyes in that room and saying, we're going to get strong, we're going to get healthy in mind, body, and spirit is your way of saying, we're going to beat our captors by surviving and making it out of here alive. And again, that's the thing that causes people to survive. The moment that they lose hope is the moment that they start to die. Um, but I also know this. You are the CEO. You are a leader. And any leader in an environment like that is not only worried about their family, not only worried about their own personal safety, but you got to be thinking about those five guys, especially for that first year when you have no idea if any of them are alive or dead or at home or what. And the extra burden that goes along with being a leader in captivity is concern for the, the five vice presidents that you took with you. So I can only imagine the tears that were flowing when you had a chance to see those five guys again. There is a moment that we recall for the rest of my life. Yeah. For the rest of my life. And I, I believe it was like a magical moment. I don't. Uh, I don't keep up with Venezuela as as well as I should, but there was a point where the people of Venezuela were so disgusted, so frustrated with the government that they took to the streets. They were asking for a recall. The like, there's great political pressure on the president. At one point, was that while you were still in captivity? No, it was the year after before. But that, that, the funny thing, the oldest guy that were kept as political prisoner, I met all of them. I know those are the guys that were involved. They, they were with yeah. me. They were with me. Sure. I know all these guys. So that was one year. The rest was one year before. They killed a lot of people in the yeah. street. I, I I bring that moment up. 2016. Thank you for reminding me because of how volatile and how dangerous the entire situation is in Venezuela. And the president is basically hanging on to power by his fingernails and by, you know, killing or or throwing in prison anybody who stands against them. So, again, you are his public toy, his puppet 
to show how strong he is against the U.S. government. I'm surprised that anyone was able to negotiate your release, but let's just fast forward a little bit. Um, uh, before we before we get there, I, I do think I need people to understand um, we're recording this episode just a couple of days before Christmas. Now, it's going to air in the middle of January, but I have heard multiple people that have been in prison for years say that first Christmas was brutal. And then there was a second Christmas and it was worse. And the third Christmas was worse. And the fourth Christmas was worse because I don't know if I'm going to be here for 10 more Christmases or for, or, or if this is the last one. And I just want to ask you, like, how did you handle those big moments, anniversary, children's birthdays, Christmas? Oh, terrible, terrible. Uh, that, that, can you imagine, Jerry, that happened to me four days before Thanksgiving? So I, I was in the, in, the, in the worst moment of my life during the Thanksgiving. And then came the, the Christmas. No, I can tell you, I, I, I don't know how I, I did it. I, I could take a rope and hang me. I, you, you, many things go to in, in, in your mind, but, but, but I was thinking in my family. And, 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 and you know, there are something that really boosted our faith is that when we were put together and, and that this pressure began to be bigger, our family decided to, uh, to stop being silent. And the second year, they really went big. Go to the press. They went big yeah. to the press. And at some point, we, they were going so big in the press that the press put the brand. They, they, we converted in the Citgo 6. We became a brand, really a brand. We joke today that we're gonna to, uh, 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 make a, a rock band called the Single Six, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it became a brand, you know. We became a yeah. really, literally, we became a brand, the Single Six. So um, and that began to put a lot of pressure there, and and uh, so this guy not only decided to allow us to be together, they allow us to bring those food, and they allow us to have books. So I begin to read like a crazy because our family were sending books and books and yeah. books. Yeah. I was all the day reading, nothing more to do. And then, then it came a book to, to my hand that today said that it's a miracle of God. A, a guy that was a survivor of the concentration camps in, in, in World War II, Victor Franco, Man in the Search for Meaning. Victor Franco's The yeah, Man's Search I, for I, Meaning. I, I read yeah. that book. It's it been there. I can tell you, when I read that book, wow. First, I understood where we were. We were really like in a concentration camp because most of the things that he says in his book, we were suffering. But, but when I heard about how if you find your purpose in your life, how you, how you make that connection with God, how you find that meaning, wow. That was for me like, okay, this is it. So that that really, really made us like, okay, this is it. This is what we're going to do. And today, I can tell you, <laughs> for me, Victor Franklin became like like that my my light, you know, that he lighted. He was like a blown mind reading that book. And, and really, 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 after that, our situation changed. Our hope was totally different, totally different. Yeah, well, that book has touched millions and millions of people that have never been in captivity. But well, can you imagine I can my only case? Guess what kind of a lifeline, like a life preserver, it must have been. 
Yeah, uh, for for me, for me today, uh, I I encourage everybody to read that book. Everybody, and everywhere I go, I talk about that book because that book it really changed my life. I can tell you, it changed my life. Let's talk, Jose, about how you actually get released. Would you describe what happens? Uh, I want to make sure everybody hears this again. You are just a few months short of five years. I'll, I'll say it in days, 1,775 days. That's four years and eight months in captivity. How do you get released? What what happens that causes you to get released? Okay. Happened that uh, there's a change of the administration and, and, and when the new administration comes, one of the good things that was there was created a, a law, uh, an act called the Robert Levinson Act. It happened in 2019. And this act first cre created the, the instance of protecting you as a wrongfully detained. Uh, now you are really under the umbrella of the, of, of, of the protection of the state that they can make strong decisions in your case. And there was created at the office of the Special Presidential Office for the Hostage Affair, SPIA, that is in Washington. They, they appointed an ambassador. It is today, it's there, Roger Carlton. Maybe I don't know if you know him. Roger Carlton, he's an ex-Navy uh, SEAL. Well, Roger was appointed by, by Trump and he was ratified by Biden. That's good news because there was you know no transition. And that guy... He, one year before he could do a quietly travel to Venezuela, the first time he, the official American was in Venezuela was one year before wow. he came to visit to us. He went to visit wow. to us and then we had like a two hour talk with him. And, and he told us, I'm doing everything to release you guys. You're going to come back. So he, he began to visit every three months he was going there. He came in December 2021, then came in March 2022, and came back in May 20. In March 2022, he could bring one of the guys, one of the guys that, uh, that was in the worst condition, he could release it, like a proof. He could get one, one of your vice presidents. Yeah, 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 one, uh -huh. one. Gustavo was released in March 2022. In May, in May, there began to be a lot of information. Remember, I was having the letters, so I was really more and more informed about what was going on. And there was a strong uh, uh, kind of agreement that we could get released in May. Something, this thing, remember, this is something that high politics that between the two countries, something wrong happened and thing didn't happen. He came back in May. In October, October 1st, 5 a.m. in the morning, they came to the cell and told us, by that time, they were calling us the single six. Hey, single six, come here. We became the single six. You know? Single six, come here and, and uh, dress up. So we thought there was Roger coming, his visit. And when we dressed up, we saw a lot of people there and, and they put us in an armored truck. And when I saw in, in this small window, I saw that said Maiketia Airport. I said, wow, this is happening. They put us in a, a, a plane, kind of funny. It was a PDVSA plane. I knew the plane because I, I flew in those planes a lot. So it was a PDVSA plane. And they put us handcuffed 
they tied our, our, our legs and they wanted to put uh -huh. us books. I said, hey, what this guy going to do with us? You know, I, I begin to be yeah. kind of scared because you don't know of if course. they are going to throw you in the, in the middle of, of the sea. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> we, we found a nice landing in a small island called San Vicente and Granadines. It's a very tiny island that is in the top of uh, Dominican Republic. We landed there in the middle of nowhere. And we were, what, we, what the heck were we doing here? So like five minutes after came the plane of the U.S. with the two nephews of, of Maduro. And then he came. We learned that day that wow. we were released to a prisoner swap. He came wow. to a prisoner swap. Something I similar to what's happening today, what I was telling you. Yeah. I can only imagine the feelings when that U.S. airplane showed up and you got, you know, people grabbing you and hugging you and telling you. I sent you the photo. One of the photos that your assistant has is that photo we took inside the plane. You can, you, you have it in, in, the, in the stream of photos yeah. I sent it to you. Yeah. I sent it a photo. There was a photo where all of us are there. And it was really wow. I can tell you, all of us were crying, we're, we're hugging. Wow, what was that? Sure. I have a quote that I used to have hanging on my walls for almost 10 years. And the quote was scratched on a piece of paper. It was left on the floor of a military airplane that landed at Clark Field in the Philippines. And it was the last remaining prisoners that came out of the Hanoi Hilton at the end of the Vietnam War. And this quote basically said, and I'm telling the listeners about this quote, just to try to, I don't think that words can describe the feelings the moment that you realize, actually, I'm free. But the quote said, freedom has a taste to those who have fought and almost died that the protected will never know. And basically what that prisoner in that um, North Vietnamese prison camp was saying is, I now experience freedom that I've never experienced before because I lost freedom like I've never lost it before. And I can tell you from many examples of military that have been in prison of war camps, they'll never forget the moment that they realized I'm finally and fully free and uh, it will stick with them for the rest of their life. I, I'm, I, I don't know that there are words to describe what that moment must have felt like for you. I had several moments during that uh, uh, when we were putting in, in the U.S. plane. I was kind of a, was a mixed emotion that, that wow, we released. I was happy because I was released, but at the same time, I couldn't believe it. So at some point, I was like, a, you know, and and the ambassador Carter, he was there. And he he was sitting beside me. He sitting with me, and we were talking. And we we had like two hours flying talking. And at some point, he received a, a call, and he tell me, "Okay, now it's official. We have crossed uh, international U.S. Uh, air, and now you you are released. The president has talked with your wife." The president called the sixth wife and, and, and told that we were going to be protected by the U.S. government. We were going to be landed in a military base in San Antonio. We landed in San Antonio. Uh -huh. And then I told him, can I talk with my wife? And he gave me the phone. I talked with my wife in the air. So I called her and said, hey, mommy, I'm here. And then she was in shock, you know. And then yeah. I live in Houston. 
we were going to land in San Antonio like two hours after. And then I, I told her, what are we going to do? You have to be here. She has a small shop. So I had that. No, no, close that. Come here. And then I, I talked with Ambassador Carsten and I told her to go. So they, they received me when I, I landed in, 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 in the tarmac, in the hangar. There was my wife or all my family, but the, the, the funny moment that I, by the way, I sent the photo to you too, is that my grandson had been born and I, I, during my captivity. So what my, what my daughter-in-law was doing, it was showing her uh, him photos of me and they were sending me photos of him. So when I, I saw this tiny guy running to me and he said, yeah. Oh, I said, okay, this is uh, my grandson. <laughs> I bet you melted. I yeah. can tell you, man, this is the best moment ever in my life. Ever, yeah. ever. Wow. Um, like any great leader, you were just about ready to retire, just months away from retirement when you got uh, taken captive in Venezuela. You come back and you end your career with Sitco. But because of what you've been through, like any great leader, you want to help other people. So you started helping others that are in captivity. Yeah. Would you tell everybody a little bit about what you started when you returned? Well, you, you know, the first thing for me was a, a surprise knowing that there were other Americans in this situation. And as I said, uh, our families begin to have more involvement with the press. And, and, and at some point, they knew other families that people that are captive in other countries and and they put together and they created a, a campaign called the bring our family home campaign the bring our family home campaign that uh, they created an alley in georgetown with 20 uh, faces then my faces is there is there uh and uh and uh, that Ali became like a sacred place for, for all of the families. So one month after I came in November, I flew to Washington to take me photos in, in that alley. What I didn't know that I was the first person going there. So so it became to be a big event, you know, yeah. press, uh, and yeah. people of the government, congressmen. A lot of people were there. I was like in shock. And then, I'm sure then you I, were. I, I was like, what, what is going on here, you know? But I began to meet those families and, and I began to get connected to them. And, and, and to tell you the truth, I, I, I saw that uh, I was giving a lot of message of hope and faith. And I said, well, Jose, you had your long career that you did a lot of leadership and, and you went through a lot of things in, in, in your career. And now you went through this situation so I combined both things and I created a coaching program called Life Pill for Survivor Guide. And today I help entrepreneurs, you know, to what I said, to tap their unbreakable spirit and become great leaders. So that, that, that's why today I, I, I'm talking. I'm really active today. I have a LinkedIn account. I do a audio rooms. I do master classes. I, I, I have a newsletter. By the way, I became an executive contributor about Brains Magazine. I'm writing there. I'm doing this, doing podcasts. So, so I, I, I begin to to talk loudly about this. I wrote my book that's gonna coming out now, talking my story, but talking about what I call my legacy. That is that my message can be a message that can give hope, faith, and and strength and resilience.
Jose, you created this life pills for survival guide to help people that have gone through or families that are going through what your family went through. It is December 20th when we're recording this, although this episode is going to go out on January. We're just a couple of days away from Christmas. And you told me right before we started recording, you've got a really big Christmas present for some Venezuelan families that are living in the United States. Will you tell everybody the big news that just happened today? Yeah, today is happening something great because uh, several Americans that, that they are there in Venezuela, almost a dozen of Americans, they're getting released today. It's happening. Uh, it, it's in, you know, these always are some tricky things, but today even the Secretary Brinkin did an announcement. That they're not officially announcing it, but, but it's going to happen. A prisoner swap could happen in any moment. Is it under development? And today I'm connected with all these families. And one of the two guys, there's, there are two, two green bears that they were our neighbors there. So we gathered with them during years. So I called his mom yesterday and I told her when they come back, I'm, I'm going to fly to meet with them and sure. hug them. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great Some news. It's a great Christmas gift. Yeah, that's what I was. You took the words out of my mouth about a dozen families are going to get their best Christmas gift. Oh, ever, ever, ever. I so, I so excited by that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You've talked about your book a couple of times. Now, when this episode airs, your book will just be re getting ready to release. So what is the title of the book and what is it? You've already hinted at it, but tell everybody what the book is. Well, my book is called From Hero to Villain. The true story of the Sitgo Six. Why the, from hero to billion? Because I was like a true hero, you know, doing things in the Venezuelan oil gas. And then I became a billion. They, 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 you know, a spy, a treason, all this stuff that they, 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 you know, invented, fake thing, everything sham. Uh, so I became from hero to villain, and it is the true story of the Sitgo Six. I'm telling by my, my, my own and unique perspective because the letters I wrote my, with my wife because we were six so I respect you know the 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 the, the other five guys it, this is my my personal story this is my personal story how, what I went through the how the situation was evolving and 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 the message that I want to have today to the people that any adversity in your life you can survive you know yes that, that's the uh, reason that's the reason this podcast exists, but I'll tell all of the listeners, if Jose can go through four years and eight months of captivity for doing absolutely nothing wrong and still be healthy and now helping people on the other side of it, you can go through whatever it is you're facing right now. And maybe you can pick up Jose's book from hero to villain the true story of the Sitco Six, and it'll encourage you if you're struggling and people are treating you bad and you didn't even do anything wrong to deserve it. Um, Jose, I want to tell you, thank you for taking some time out of your very busy holiday season uh, to do this interview with me. We're going to let our listeners know how they can get a free copy of your book. I'm going to buy a copy and give it away free to somebody who's listening today. But I just want to tell you, you're an inspiration to me by the way that you conducted yourself in that prison camp. And now by the way that you're using your experience to help other people that are going through the same thing. 
So thank you for what you're doing. And for those 12 families that are going to learn today that their loved one is getting released. Merry Christmas to them, right? Yeah, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And thank you for so beautiful program, my friend. Yeah, Jose, it's been great talking to you. I hope you and your family have a great week. You too, my friend. Bye. I hope you were blown away by Jose Piera's story. I told you I was going to try to pronounce his name during this episode, and I know I just mutilated it. For all of you native Spanish speakers, forgive me for my pronunciation. But for everybody that's listening to this episode, when you hear Jose's story, when you hear what Jose has been through, I am convinced you should be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, well, I can handle what I'm going through if Jose can handle what he's going through. And Jose was able to do the same thing when he picked up Victor Franco's book and read what he went through in a Nazi concentration camp. The whole reason Unbeatable exists as a podcast is to just help you face your worst moments in life and get up and dust yourself off and not lose hope. Because as we said in this episode, you lose hope and the end is right around the corner. We also talked about Jose's book, so somebody is going to get a free copy of that book, and all you have to do to get a copy is become part of the Unbeatable Army. It is our totally free email list. I send content out, not just about the episodes, but I do regular content throughout the week, and I deliver it straight to your inbox. So if you want to be registered for a free copy of Jose's book, From Hero to Villain, or if you just want some pretty amazing content delivered to your inbox, why don't you go over to unbeatablearmy.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on YouTube or your favorite podcast platform. And you can follow us on social media because on social media, you're going to find a lot of other people that are unbeatable. Also, like our fan of the week this week, Sergeant Michael Sergu or Sergiu. Sergeant retired Michael Sergio, thank you for staying connected. Thank you for being so involved. Thank you for being part of the unbeatable army. I hope that you have a great week. I hope that you're inspired by this episode. And I'm going to try to bring you another guest next week that's equally inspiring. Thanks for joining me. God bless. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable.